Okay, in the last episode, we surveyed fig trees in the Old Testament. We saw how they were associated with blessings, with curses, and that they often signified Old Covenant Israel. When we get to the New Testament, we see this fig tree motif continues in Jesus's ministry. My basic argument is that the fig tree is Old Covenant Israel. And what happens is Jesus teaches extensively on bearing good fruit, and that Old Covenant Israel doesn't bear good fruit, and that they incur exactly what Jesus says happens to trees, fig trees that don't bear good fruit, that they are judged. And this barrenness is specific to those Jews who didn't believe, particularly the leadership. So in other words, Jesus comes to Israel and he finds an unfaithful people. In Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus carries on the same language of trees that we have seen in the Old Testament. He compares false prophets to trees that don't bear fruit. And he says that these trees that don't bear fruit are cut down and thrown into fire. He asks if men gather figs from thistles, which of course the answer is no. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Okay. From the rest of scripture in numerous places, we know that good fruit is righteousness. Good fruit is the manifestation of the spirit in the believer. It is the evidence of faith in the lives of the believer. Paul says the fruit of the spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And you can look at the transcript to see other citations for what good fruit is. It's It can also be successful discipleship. That is also fruit, faithful discipleship. Discipling the nations is a way of bearing fruit in, in a sense. So being fruitful means a lot of different things. The fruits of the Spirit, uh, as Paul says here, goodness, righteousness, and truth. It can also be conversions of people. But Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says that every tree, tree being a false prophet, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is relevant to us because the general shape of that judgment, it relates relates to Jerusalem, to Israel. They were supposed to be a prophet to the nations, and they didn't do that, so they were cut down and destroyed. In some ways, we see this as similar to the parable of Abimelech as bramble given to Jotham. Jotham gives the parable of trees from Mount Gerizim, which was the mountain that the Israelites rehearsed the blessings of God from. Jesus gives a parable of sorts. He compares prophets to trees while speaking from a mount as well, the Sermon on the Mount. Jotham talks about the bramble of Abimelech ruling over Israel. Jesus teaches about the bramble of false prophets in Israel. And what happens to them? They are judged. They are thrown into fire. The Gospel of Luke records a similar teaching, but instead of specifying it to false prophets, he broadens it to all men generally, speaking of types of men being types of trees bearing fruit or not bearing fruit or bearing bad fruit. Every tree is known by its fruit, for men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. Again, these things should be eliciting the Old Testament understandings, the Old Testament survey. In both passages, Jesus is teaching us how to judge. He's following these teachings up with judge with righteous judgment, and that we are able to judge based on the evidence of fruit in the lives of men. James basically restates this in his epistle. He says, in talking about how we should speak, he says, does a spring send forth fresh water and, and, and bitter from the same spring? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? So types of trees bear types of fruit. Types of men bear types of works. Bad hearts produce bad faith. Good hearts produce good faith. And bearing bad fruit incurs judgment. Okay, so how does one bear good fruit? The answer is by being united to Christ. 
union with Christ. One has to be ontologically changed. Jesus has to give a new heart. Well, we are given a new heart by being bound with him, united with him. In John 15, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can read it on your on your own. Jesus is essentially saying, I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that he may bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So again, this kind of horticultural comparison between men and vines. It's not fig trees, but it's showing how this works. He goes on, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Okay, go and bear fruit. We could view that as live living holy, righteous lives, but also discipling the nations. And how do we do that? Abiding in Christ, being in Christ. And the New Testament epistles are filled with this idea of being in Christ, being united to Christ. And Paul makes this clear in Romans 6 when he says that we are united to Christ in baptism. Proverbs 11:30 kind of thinking about this kind of discipleship aspect as well. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he who wins souls is wise. Again, later in John, Jesus says most assuredly I say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies it remains alone, but if it dies it it produces much fruit or much grain. Okay, so he's giving this death and resurrection idea with grain, fruit, and Paul makes this explicit in Romans 6 that in baptism we die with Christ, we rise with Christ, we resurrect with Christ, the fruits of righteousness are born in us, we put to death sin in our lives. We could say that Jesus is the first fruits of the tree of the cross and that we are the later fruits of the tree of the cross in Christ. And this is kind of an ontological aspect of salvation that we are talking about what a thing is is if a thing is united to Christ and it's bearing good fruit, it's being sanctified, it's being saved, it's being justified. This is emphasized more in Eastern theology. Westerners sometimes who maybe kind of get disillusioned or exhausted with the juridical debates between faith and good works find this ontological aspect appealing. And I think it's understandable, but we have the ontological aspect in the Protestant Reformed tradition. Calvin is constantly talking about our union with Christ through the Spirit. So we would do well to affirm both of these things. For our purposes, we see that trees can only bear fruit in union with Christ. And trees that do not bear fruit are cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, Jesus is teaching that unfaithful men who reject Christ are barren men, men devoid of righteousness. And that unrighteous, Christ-forsaking men are judged. They are cut down. They are destroyed in fire, which on a larger aspect, is exactly what happened to Old Covenant Israel. There was a remnant that believed, but by and large, the synagogue, the Israelite leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees rejected Christ. They were cut down and thrown into the fire. And of course, this does have this it does have an eternal aspect to it, of course. The day of judgment, people will be thrown into eternal conscious torment in hell if they're not united to Christ and bearing good fruit. But the immediate thing that we will discover as we go, I think, is pertinent to the situation in Israel. If you want a more detailed account of these things, you can check the transcript. I'm trying to condense this so it's not droning on and on. Okay. So in John 1, we see a man under his fig tree immediately. Philip brings Nathanael to Jesus, and he says that this is the Messiah. This is the prophesied prophet 
that Moses tells us about. And then Nathaniel makes this remark, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it's this kind of sarcastic remark, right? And Jesus is not offended. In fact, he commends Nathaniel for being someone who, in whom there is no deceit. Then Nathaniel asks how Jesus knows him. And Jesus says he saw him under a fig tree or under the fig tree. Basically, any reading of this has to speculate what was going on there. But I think at bottom, Jesus is demonstrating his divinity somehow to Nathaniel. And I think it probably went something like this, that Nathaniel was praying to God underneath the fig tree in this kind of sincere prayer closet sort of way. And Jesus is saying, when you were praying, you were praying to me. I saw you. Perhaps Nathaniel said something like, please see me, God, in this moment. We see this in the Old Testament. God is the God who sees. And so perhaps Jesus knew what those prayers were, and he was seizing on that to identify himself to Nathaniel. But we don't know. None of that is made explicit. The only thing that's made explicit is that he sees him under the fig tree, and that Nathaniel immediately is won over, and he confesses Jesus as the Son of God, the King of Israel. And for our purposes, I think the appearance of a man under a fig tree ought to remind us of when it occurred in the Old Testament. Well, when did it occur under the Old Testament? During the time of Solomon. During the time of Solomon, we're told that each man dwelt safely under his own fig tree. It was this figure of blessing, the sign of blessing on the people of Israel. And as Jesus says elsewhere of himself, one greater than Solomon has now arrived. This also might cue us into the prophecies of Micah and Zechariah, which anticipate the coming Messiah's reign, where men will each dwell under their own fig tree, and they will invite others to do so as well. It's this kind of figure of blessing. Micah 4.4, Zechariah 3. We talked about it last time. It's almost as if to say Nathaniel is a first fruits of more to come, of more men dwelling under their fig tree, inviting others to do so. A signification that the one greater than Solomon is here. That's my take on it, at least. Okay, by the time we get to Luke 13, Jesus teaches this fig tree parable. It's a barren fig tree. Luke 13, 6 through 9. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well... But if not, after that, you can cut it down. So we have the larger principles of Jesus' teaching here of good fruit and bad fruit or barren fruit, faithfulness and unfaithfulness, that trees which do not bear fruit are cut down. We could just take it as that principle and just say, this means we're supposed to live holy lives. We're supposed to bear good fruit. It does mean that, but I think it means something more specific. I think given the survey of scripture so far, surrounding context of this passage, we can deduce that this parable is specifically about Israel. Right before the parable, there are Jews who tell Jesus about Galileans who were killed by Pilate. But Jesus responds, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Because they suffered such things. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I think that this is Jesus saying, you guys need to repent or perish. He goes right into the fig tree parable saying, you guys are not bearing good fruit. You need to repent or perish. I think that, that, that it's very clear that this is what's going on. However, this Tower of Siloam teaching 
is used by preachers and theologians to basically teach the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. They use it to dismiss the cause and effect of sin in judgment. They say, look, Jesus is just saying everybody is a sinner and you're no worse than that person. If something bad happens to them, you probably deserve it too because we're all just sinners. And if something bad happens to you, you're actually not a sinner. You're as blameless as Job and you really didn't do anything wrong. It's just a testing of your faith. So yeah, there are Jobs that exist, but... The Bible is replete with teaching that specific sins, specific unrepentant sins, have specific temporal judgments. Specific obedience has specific temporal blessings. That is what Jesus is teaching here. That these men are actual sinners in need of actual repentance. And that the Tower of Siloam and the Galileans who were killed were preliminary judgments to something greater that was coming, which it did within that generation. Jerusalem was annihilated. Everybody should read Josephus and read what happened in Jerusalem. It was a nightmare. And basically, also everything that Jesus says <laughs> came true. But the point is, this is not Jesus teaching an abstract principle of Calvinistic universal total depravity. That is true. By virtue of our original sin and our actual sin, we all deserve hell. But there are temporal judgments and blessings that are meted out in accordance with certain kinds of obediences and disobedience. Jesus is speaking to the Israelites here. He follows it up with a fig tree parable, saying the same thing. We see John the Baptist do the same thing and use the same language with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, repent, bear fruits worthy of repentance. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 3. Again, and it's directed towards the leadership of Israel. So this is all talking to these specific people. We start to see this association. Israel, their leadership. There are these trees that aren't bearing fruit. It's all over the place. That is what this fig tree parable is about. It's about Israel not bearing fruit, not being, not repenting. We also see in the parable, there's an owner. The, he owns the vineyard. He owns the fig tree. It is his. A certain man owns these things. This is Jesus. The vineyard is Israel. The fig tree is Israel, is Jerusalem we could say. And we see that he checks for three years. Jesus was in ministry for three years. And I think that this is what we are supposed to associate it with. But then they're given this fourth year, this last chance to repent. Now, what is that? I think that this is the coming of the Holy Spirit after Jesus's resurrection and ascension and then sending of the Holy Spirit. And why do I think this? I think this because this comports with what Jesus says about the unpardonable sin. Blasphemy against the Son will be forgiven. That's three years of not bearing fruit. But then there's a fourth year, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So if we view this as a chronological thing, Jesus is bearing with their unfaithfulness this whole time. But then once the Holy Spirit is sent... That blasphemy, that's their last chance to repent. And then they will not be forgiven once they reject the Holy Spirit. And then we see that they are destroyed temporally and they're giving up salvation in a kind of eternal sense as well. And we see that some men do repent, right? At Pentecost, 3,000 men repented. Paul eventually repents. But Peter is calling them to repentance, calling them to repent of killing their Messiah, calling them to repent of their sins. But the others that didn't, they suffered a horrible, horrible judgment in the siege of Jerusalem. Then, in the same chapter where Jesus teaches the 
fig tree parable, the barren fig tree. We see he follows it up with a series of miracles, teachings, and a confrontation with the Pharisees. And then what happens? Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This seems to me to pretty conclusively connect the fig tree to Israel. Jesus is saying, you need to repent. John the Baptist is saying, you need to repent. The Jews, the Israelites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. You think the Galileans and the people at the Tower of Siloam were any worse sinners than you? You need to repent. Here's a fig tree parable. It's three years checking for figs. Nothing. I'll give you a fourth year. And if not, it's going to be cut down, right? John says the ax is laid at the, at the root. So it's just all over the place. It's all over the place. But I think Jesus' teachings here, his weeping over Jerusalem is not without hope. He says, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Blessed is he who comes as a minister of the gospel, proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah over Israel. They will have eyes to see. God will give them eyes to see. And that's what will come out of their mouth. They will bless the ministers of the gospel. They will bless their Christ, our Christ. They will see him much like Joseph's brothers finally saw him as the king over the Gentiles, just as Christ is is king over us now. So I think that there is something like this here. Paul talks about this in Romans 9 to 11, that their apostasy is part of God's plan, but God is not abandoning them and they will be brought back in. They will be given eyes to see. They will be given hearts to believe at some point. And I think Jesus in his weeping is making an allusion to this. Some would probably like an explicit text that says the fig tree is Israel. But sometimes God doesn't communicate like that to us. Sometimes he speaks in parables and riddles and mysteries. The Proverbs say it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out. I believe the fig tree as Israel makes the text intelligible. It makes the history intelligible. I can't imagine what else it would be. And it also has historical solidarity with Christian thinkers in the past. I haven't gone into it much, but um, I actually just recently looked up on Logos Software and the, I think it's a Faith Life commentary, and it's saying the same things that I've come to independently. I haven't even looked at commentaries before I wrote this, but I did look at that. I did see Matthew Henry viewed it the same way, and I saw that Augustine viewed it the same way as well. So it has historical solidarity. It's not some weird esoteric thing that I'm just coming up. I think that it just naturally lends itself to that reading, and if you read it that way, it also nestles in nicely with a kind of preteristic post-millennial view or a optimistic mystic amillennial view. So this gives us a little bit more background for understanding what Jesus is doing when he curses the fig tree, which we will talk about next time. It should be pretty obvious. He's again, he's a certain man looking for figs on a fig tree and he doesn't find any. Well, what does Jesus say about barren fig trees, right? So all of this kind of comports, it all connects. And then we'll make our way to the Olivet Discourse and why he brings it up there again, which of course, as you can guess, it's basically the same thing. The next episode is going to be difficult because it does get into some pretty difficult teachings from Jesus, but we'll try to tackle that next time. All right, have a good one. Bye.